Yo, what is going on, baby? Nathan Kennedy, The New Money Podcast, episode 87. How y'all doing, man? Hoping you guys are enjoying your week. Happy early Easter to those who celebrate it, and happy day off to those who get a day off. It's a, it's, it's, a, it's pretty chill, man. It's pretty chill. Thank you so much for tuning in. As usual, my friends, ask me any questions you have on Instagram, as well as if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave me a review. I want to hear your feedback. You know what I'm saying? I want to hear what you guys think of the show, how can I make it better? I always am trying to make this shit better. So let me know, shoot me a DM, leave a review, all that kind of stuff would really appreciate it. So today what I have is a really special interview. It's with a content creator that goes by the handle MyRichBFF. She formerly worked on Wall Street, now she's in tech and media. And honestly, she makes fantastic financial literacy content based around the actual like why behind things, like why things are the way they are, how does it work, puts it in normal people language, and it's just fantastic. And her and I have a really good discussion. And you know, if you're in your 20s or early 30s, I think this is a fantastic podcast to listen to because her and I just talk about a lot of things that, I don't know, young professionals go through and trying to like fucking find your way and shit. So I think it's a really dope one. Her and I vibe and it's just like a, it's like a good listen, man. But I say that every time. So, uh, you know, if you, you want to call me out and listen to the whole thing and uh, <laughs> tell me, tell me if you liked it or not. But honestly, I, I really think you will. Great interview. So without further ado, let's just dive on into it, baby. What is up, my rich BFF? Hey, Nathan. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing about as well as I could be. You know, I'm about to celebrate my second quarantine birthday. So things could be better. But, you know, 12 months later, we are doing the best we can. That's that's so funny you say that because I, I have my, my birthdays in, uh, is it a week? A week from, so actually six days from now. So... That's, oh, happy yeah. early birthday. Yeah, 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 yeah. You too. You too. That's that's really awesome. That's awesome. Guys, I have a very special guest on and, you know, I absolutely love her content. My Is, is it my rich BFF or rich BFF? It's, it's your rich BFF. Oh, your rich BFF. <laughs> okay, 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 okay. Absolutely love it. And and I just thought with, you know, her, her Wall Street experience, I think it would just be so fun to just dive in. So just tell us a little bit about your, your history and why you started uh, your page. Yeah, absolutely. So I do have a background on Wall Street. I went to the University of Chicago, ended up at a major bulge bracket trading equities, and I covered industrials, materials, and energy for a little bit, and then started trading risk arbitrage, which is like stocks that are going through changes like mergers, acquisitions, spinoffs, stuff like that. I ended up leaving the financial services industry for greener pastures over in tech and media, like so many young people do. And Honestly, my TikTok started off a little bit as a joke. A lot of my new coworkers, you know, would say stuff like, oh, like, how do I balance my 401k? Like, you know, what what goes into an HSA? Should I be putting money there? Should I be buying the company stock options? And it got to the point where I was like, well, I'm getting so many of these questions. I'm going to make like a financial literacy TikTok for fun. And It started off, you know, with one video that ended up going really viral, but I think it spoke to a little bit more of like why, like why and how many folks really want this information in a digestible way. And even more so, I think with the pandemic, a lot of folks are in financial positions that aren't as 
sunny as they probably were 12 months ago. And I was seeing some really sketchy financial advice going around on the internet. And I just kind of wanted to help folks learn financial literacy because it's important for you to be able to make those financial decisions on your own versus just listening to some guy on the internet. Yeah, absolutely. So is personal finance and financial, is that something you're very passionate about? Or is it more so like, I have a pretty great understanding about this. This is something folks need. I feel like almost responsible that like I should be doing something about it. Or is it is, is it a little bit of both? Yeah, it's definitely a little bit of both. I think, you know, people think that I have strong financial literacy because I worked on Wall Street. Let me tell you, that is not the case. You know, a, a few years ago when I was new to New York in the dating scene, I went on this date with another guy who worked on Wall Street, was an investment banker, and the date wasn't going that well. He was kind of a jerk and he was talking about all these fancy vacations he was taking and he had like a Rolex on and all this stuff. And then he like, you know, he hit the bottle kind of hard and he like let it slip that he had five figure credit card debt. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm looking at it. It's on your wrist. It's on your shoes. It's like, you know, the Hermes tie you're wearing. And so I thought it was kind of insane that like people didn't know how to be financially secure. And like a lot of young people today are spending money on clout. So I thought it was important to be the person, you know, sending the message that you shouldn't be spending your money on silly stuff that you may not value in 10 years, but saving money for retirement is going to benefit you a lot more in the long run. Do you think if financial literacy was taught in schools or at a younger age, like, do you think it would have a profound effect uh, with with it being taught a lot earlier? Or do you think there's societal, you know, I don't know, I guess not, pre- I guess pressure. Yeah, pressure with like cloud and things like that. Do you think that would kind of override that? What, what are your thoughts on, you know, early education on that? Yeah, I think it, there's always going to be, you know, clout chasing. There's always going to be like Instagram being the highlight reel. You're comparing yourself to your friends. But I do think if financial literacy was taught in schools at a younger age, it'd be a lot less of an issue. How many times in your adult life have you used the Pythagorean theorem? Literally never, not once. But it would have been really, really nice to know how to do my taxes correctly. It would have been really nice to know how to open up a high yield savings account and save for retirement and, you know, create a balanced portfolio and build wealth versus just talking about it as if it's this theoretical thing that every single person in the world doesn't need to be worried about. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's tough. Yeah. I mean, it's, I shake my head sometimes and it's like, I always, whenever I talk about it with, with somebody who, you know, loves personal finance or is into it or, you know, is, is financially literate. It's like, I, I feel like I hope someday that you know, I can have an impact on a, on a mass scale like that, where, you know, you can actually go out and, and see that it's being taught at a younger age. I, I feel like, so I'm from Ontario and there was like an announcement that, you know, they're going to be teaching financial literacy. And I, I just wonder like, what in particular are they teaching? Are they, are they going to incorporate like it into math? And they're going to say like, it's like, we're using coins instead of like, I don't know, co- like cookies, like what, what, what like, you know, and if, like what, what exactly does that look like? And I think for me, it's not just like incorporating it for it to be just like another ancillary, like topic, like, no, this needs to be in the same light as like English and math and like at, at a very crucial, crucial level. And 
you know, I mean, you like, it's just, I don't know. It's, it's, how is it in the States? Are they starting to, are you starting to see some grassroots stuff? I think it's definitely something that's like popping up in, you know, more elite communities, like private schools for what it's worth. I went to a large public school. So like, I didn't have anything like that, but I think it's, it's becoming something that more people are talking about, but it's definitely not been rolled out in the same way that like, you know, the, like a math program would be. And not to like harp on the American education system, but, you know, you see these headlines of like funding being rolled back for like the arts, like for music, for, um, you know, band programs, choir programs, art, like arts programs. And a big concern I have is that like, it'll be one of the first things to be cut from a funding perspective because it would be like the new kid on the block in terms of like what they're teaching. So it's tough. It's tough. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, working on wall street, coming out of school, were you studying like absolutely into the stuff in university? And so you kind of came out of the gates, like, like you came out swinging and you knew kind of how to make your moves and set up things with your job. And you're like, all right, I got a job now, 401k, all that. Like, how did you like introduce yourself to the workforce and how, how was that sort of process? Yeah. Um, that's a really good question. I always knew I wanted to do something in the business world and coming from a Chinese immigrant family, it was like, you're either a doctor or you're a lawyer. I didn't want to be either of those things. And I want, I wanted to go into business, but I definitely wasn't set on finance. I went to the university of Chicago, which fortunately is a very big wall street theater school. Um, so we've got a pretty deep alumni across the street and, you know, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I definitely didn't want to rely on my parents for assent as soon as I was out of school. So I, you know, was fortunate enough to interview at a bunch of firms, ended up getting a job. And I was like, yes, I'm set. I'm set. Like this is going to be an awesome job, but no, it was a rude awakening when I got to, you know, the analyst training when they were like, all right, don't forget to set up your 401ks. I'm like, what what is that? What is that? I'm like on my cell phone, like Googling, what is a 401k? Um, but very fortunately again, for me, I was in a sorority at the university of Chicago. And I don't know if you know the reputation of U Chicago, but it's a large, just like a bunch of dorks. Even the girls (laughs) in the sorority are not like what you're picturing. They were all very, very high achieving women. And a lot of them had also you know, kind of blazed the path on wall street. So I just mm-hmm. pinged them and I was like, Hey, like, what should I be doing for this? What did you do? Like, can you give me some pointers? And I had folks who were kind enough to give me help. So I guess, you know, your rich BFF is a little bit of my way of paying it forward. Absolutely. Was it tough being in school? And like, did you, sorry, if you don't mind me asking, did you have to take on student debt for school? So I was very, very lucky in high school. I applied to, in my senior year, I applied to a bunch of scholarships, ended up getting quite a bit of money from those. Through the University of Chicago, I also had merit aid and my parents were able to help me with the rest of that. So the number one gift they ever gave me was me being able to come out of a school like the University of Chicago with no student debt. That said, I recognize that that is not the case. I am super privileged and that isn't how it goes for the vast majority of folks who go to Mm -hmm. school. So I think that is a big topic I do want to cover 
because student debt is in the trillions in America in particular. Mm. And it's one of the reasons why a lot of people are held back in their finances. Absolutely. And the, the reason I ask that is because, I mean, from like an external point of view, I'm thinking, okay, you're a kid, you go to school, you take out all this debt, right? You, you get, you do very well. Like you do well for yourself and you work hard at school, you get a nice job, but you, it's, it, it's in like New York standard. Like I would imagine the cost of living in New York is insane and you've got all this debt. And I was honestly, I saw this video of this girl who, who's like, um, she's working at a, like a law firm. She's making like, I think it was like 150,000. And she, she was saying, and it, she literally broke down her thing. She was like living paycheck to paycheck between her student debt and the cost of living. And it's like, she's not living extravagantly. And I was like, between taxes. That, that. And so like, I'm just like, how, how, when your friends come to you where they're in affluent jobs even, and, but they're in like these, you know, these bigger cities and they've got this, obviously this massive debt. Like I told, first of all, I totally understand why people get so flustered around personal finance because things like that. But what's your sort of like opinion on how to tackle something like that? Yeah, 100%. And do I have a story for you? I think like getting rich, there's two things you need to be doing. There's, and this is the same equation for every single person. One, increase your take home, increase the top line and two, decrease the bottom line, AKA your expenses. So for me, again, like I mentioned, I was so, so fortunate not to have student debt. So that wasn't something I was worried about. And, you know, my first year in New York, I was not making $150,000 a year. Let's just put, let's, you know, I was on wall street, but like I was an analyst, like I wasn't making that number. I lived with another girl in an apartment that was about like 500, 600 square feet. It was a studio apartment and we split it and there was no wall. It was like a dorm room. We like, if we both sat up in our beds, we were looking at each other and people were like, are you nuts? Like, why are you doing that? But we paid the least in rent among anybody that we knew anybody in our analyst classes, we were like, you know, living very, very close to our offices in a nice doorman building because we were able to split a studio instead of getting a two bedroom apartment. Right. And what we gave up in terms of privacy and comfort, I guess we made up for with one security being two young women in New York city, we wanted to have a doorman to like get our packages, make sure that we were safe to have the security systems and two being five minutes away from the office when you're working 80 to 120 hours a week was very, very key for us. But to your point, young people, it's very hard if you have like this insurmountable amount of debt on your shoulders to feel like you can overcome it. But it's one, living below your means. And two, as soon as you have experience in the workforce, leveraging it, making sure you're very aggressive with your employer in terms of negotiating salary and bonuses and just advocating for yourself because the fastest way to make more money aside from, you know, investing for the long term is to increase your take home during the short term. How does a young professional coming on just trying to make a, an impact in the workforce? How do they create leverage? Is it just constantly, constantly networking with other jobs, looking for other opportunities to sort of build that reserve to be like, hey, listen, you know, I've got this offer. Like, what? Like, have that conversation and trying to build career capital because I find that a lot come into their roles and they are they are afraid to ask. And I feel like, you know, with my role, I was like, like obviously, it's like ah, oh, because the first thing that goes through your mind is like, ah, oh, man 
what if I scare them off? But it's such an irrational thought because it's like, they're not just going to pull the offer because you asked for more money. Right. And so I think when you talk to people who are almost afraid to negotiate or advocate for themselves in those early stages, what's your sort of like, I guess, advice to them? Yeah. I love your one statement because it is so true. I think people get these offer letters and they're like, oh yes, I'm so lucky to have this. Like, let me take this and run. No. First thing you need to be doing is being like, you know, I really appreciate this. Do you think there's room for negotiation on this? Because you should never take their first offer. I think advocating for yourself is super important, but your own work product is a part of that. You want to make yourself irreplaceable, whether that's just really, really outperforming your seat, whether that's you know, a few years in getting a competitive offer, knowing in the back of your mind that like you would be willing to go to that new job, but bringing it to your current employer, seeing if they'll match it or raise it. And you just always have to kind of keep hustling. You can't be complacent. You can't just be like, well, this is good enough. They're paying me enough. Like, Mm. I don't think your employer's ever paying you enough, even when they're paying you too much. But like, I, you know, I think you have to continuously be thinking about what's the next step. And that's not to say like, there are times in my life where I'm just like, ha, like I am fortunate. I'm thankful. I'm at a good place. Let Mm. me just take, you know, take a small break. That's like, okay. Mm. But like long-term and like grander scheme, like think about your next step because there's always something coming up and you're going to get left behind if you're not thinking about it because everybody else is. Yeah. A hundred percent. And I think like, it's, it's so tough because people think that negotiating is, has to come from a place of I'm unhappy. I deserve this. You know what I mean? It doesn't, it doesn't have to be like this. And even like, I, I fundamentally understand that to my core. I understand that, but still, even in, you know, thoughts like that go through your head where it's like, man, I'm good. You know what I mean? It's like, like, I'm cool. Like I'm good. Like, because you're so grateful for what you have in life and it, it it's, it's like anything in life. And I think it's such a, it's such a fine line. It's, it's something I find extremely in people that I know. It's like, you can be grateful and push the fucking pace. You know what I mean? You can, you can push the envelope too. So, I mean, it's, it's so interesting. Yeah. I was also going to say, I think people forget that like your manager is not paying you money out of their pocket. Like your relationship between you and your manager is interpersonal. It's two people, it's human, but you're getting paid out of a corporation. Most, most cases. And that corporation doesn't really care about you. Your manager cares about you. Your coworkers or your friends, they care about you. You know, you care about them, but the corporate, like the corporation is not going to go belly up because they paid you an extra 20 grand. And like, you should feel emboldened to ask for it because Mm. if you are doing quality work and you are performing, like, why not? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's just, it's so hard for people to, you know, separate being grateful from, you know, just getting what they think they're worth and then some. How do you say they should negotiate if they're completely and totally happy at their job and their employers taking care of them? Do you think that they still should be pushing? Yes. I negotiate my salary every single year, 100%. (laughs) And like, you know, some people aren't going to agree with that statement, but whether it's a promotion year or it's not, I ask for more money every single year because I'm worth it. And, you know, instead of being like, you know, I'm not happy. I need more money. It's more like, I am happy. I'm doing a great job. These are the quantitative reasons why I have outperformed this year. And this is why I am deserving of Mm. a raise. Mm. And I think when you position it from that way, it's a lot more of like you showing that you're already operating at a higher level. You're already doing the job. That's like two titles above you. 
and you just want a little bit of a catch up in terms of pay to like make you right and a mark to market versus like I'm grumpy and unhappy and you need to pay me to stay here, which I think yeah. comes off as a lot more hostile and like folks don't like to hear that. Yeah. Negotiation doesn't, again, it doesn't have to be from a place of negativity or, you know, you know, or bluffing even like you don't need to like, it doesn't need to be like, Hey, listen, if you don't pay me this, then I'm going here or you don't pay me that. And, and, and I think there's such a misconception around it. It's like, just have a conversation, you know, practice empathy. Don't be scared. Nothing's going to happen. You're not going to lose your job. Everything's going to be okay. Again, I don't, you know, I always think that if you're going in, you're going to ask for something, they should give you at least something. If it's not exactly what you ask for, like, you know, that's a, that's a whole different story, but the worst, worst, worst case scenarios, they say no. And, and then you, and then, and then you build from there and you go from there, but like, they're not going to fire you. And it's like that though, but it, it sounds like crazy when I'm saying it out loud, but I swear to God, th- those are the thoughts that go through people's head. Yeah. I mean, they go through my head too, right? Like, I'm just like, Ooh, like, am I asking for too much? Is this greedy? And it's like, yeah. you sh- you're not being greedy. You yeah. are just asking for what you deserve. And that's what it is. So how do young adults sort of create a system around their finances and make it easy? Because, you know, you, <laughs> you see people that like, you, you say personal finance, they just roll their eyes because they think it's penny pinching, spreadsheets and a headache, right? So how, how do they systematize their finances? Yeah, I love this. Changing my direct deposit was like the greatest decision of my life. Essentially, for the large majority of employers, you have like a portal where you can figure out like you, you know, direct deposit, you enter your bank account, you tell them where to send the money, however often you get paid. And with that, I always split off part of my paycheck and, you know, my bonus at the end of the year, what have you, into a separate account. And I just kind of pretend it doesn't exist. I am getting paid less. I don't know. I just don't know where the money goes. But at the end of the year, you're looking at that number and it's huge. You're like, whoa, like I, like I didn't realize I had an extra, this amount of money. And you know, that's money you could be investing. That's money you could use in case you needed an emergency fund, just pretending like you are making less money, living on less, and then having that extra backup is so nice. I recently made a video on big tax refunds being bad. And people were like, well, you know, I like to get the big tax refund because then I can use that as savings or I can use that as money to invest. And I'm like, yes, but if, you know, you had changed your W4, you know, for the year and you had gotten that money throughout the year, you could have been investing and gaining interest that whole time versus just, you know, 365 days later. So I think it's very, very important to set aside money that you have already mentally written off in your head. Just pretend you lost it in the washing machine in between the couch cushions and, you know, you don't have it. And if you feel like that money is untouchable, that is a really great way to grow it. And it will serve you in the long run. Um, Unbelievably so. And I, you know, I literally made a video yesterday too. And and I said, you know, if you, if you reduce your spending by 10%, would you think you'd be 10% less happy? And, and, and then the skit, like, you know, uh, he's like, yeah, like I actually did a month and I spent 10% less. And, and then it was like, oh, so you're going to, you know, you're going to spend less. He's like, nope, no, I'm going to spend the same. It's like, it's like, I think people literally, honestly, I'm convinced, like, how can you be less happy up from spending 10% less? Like, I don't think you feel it at all. And like you say, like, it, it just comes out, you don't feel it. And it's, it's like, you got to give it a try. And I don't think it's depriving yourself because people can live on so much less than they think. Like, you know what I mean? Like it, 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 
even me, like, I feel like sometimes anybody can not, you don't have to like, just, you know, go down to survival mode, but there's always things that you can be, you know, optimizing. And, and I think if you think of your happiness level and you, and you gauge that, right. And you really, really have a good understanding of that, which is tough. And you, you know, you build that over time and you try to match the two and, and try to really make sure that it's, it's aligned. I think that's a really good way because, um, it's, it's definitely, you, you've got to experiment. You've got to experiment because you don't know your true happiness level with your money and your spending because people just write it off instantly. They say, oh, like if I spend less money, I'm going to be less happy. It's like totally not the case. No, I think like the vast majority of people are not living even close to like absolute baseline. Um, you know, that you hear these people who are doing like the fire method, financial dependence, retire early. And they're like living in an airstream and like have no stuff and like, yeah. you know, eating like broccoli that they grow in their backyard. And like, that's, I'm not advocating for that. I think that's like a really tough way to live. And like the vast majority of people like would not be happy doing that, but like cutting 10% off the top of what you spend every single month, that extra 10% is like, do I get delivery or pick up my food? Do I, like you know, like, do I go out to eat one extra time that month? Do I, you know, buy that new pair of Jordans that I really didn't need because I have three pairs that look the same. Like yeah. it's it's so extraneous and people you wouldn't even miss it. Yeah, a hundred percent. So how when you whenever somebody says how do I invest, what what's your answer? Just like straight up, they're like, how do I invest? How do you approach that answer? Yeah. So again, this is never financial advice, but sure. I think the vast majority of people um, should be investing in index funds, mutual funds, ETFs stuff that are diversified portfolios, baskets of securities in a way that they don't have to be this genius stock picker. Cause more often than not, you pick wrong. And the folks that like pick stocks for a living and actually are institutional investors have way more research, way more resources, way more technology than anybody like you or me. And by investing in diversified in like, you know, investment solutions, you're one, making sure that you're not exposed to any one big area of risk. But I think there was like some stat and I don't know it off the top of my head, but a lot, most people grow their wealth through slow and steady means versus, you know, picking GME when it's $8, selling it at you know, $300 and making the difference. Yeah. Like that's not how most people make money. Yeah, no, exactly. What What are your thoughts on just like, I mean, even just personally, like active management versus passive management, not, not necessarily what's sort of like in the best interest of everyone, but like, do you think that somebody who is willing to dedicate the time and put in the work and fundamentally analyze a company and, you know, like margin of error and, and all that kind of stuff, do you think that, there's there's a way to you know outperform the market in the long term or do you think that it's just you might as well just not even try like you should just index fund no matter what level it really differs for a bunch of different people what i will say is is that passive funds have outperformed active management more recently more than not and I think one being in a very volatile market which the last year was was great for actively managed, aggressively rebalanced portfolios. Mm -hmm. That said, 
a lot of those active managers are also now starting to rely on algorithms and technology to help them. And those are things that are also being offered through like robo advisors. So like, why are you paying this hefty, hefty fee for a guy in a suit to be doing this for you when you can pay a quarter of that and, you know, get a very similar, if not better result. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I kind of want to just shift gears to to this question, and I, I think I should. I think I was going to ask it earlier, but how how was it? And how I'm not sure if so. You you don't work on Wall Street anymore, you but you still work in New York. So how was it being a woman in finance? Yeah, I think um, Wall Street is doing a really really good job of trying to diversify their hiring. So there are more women being hired now than there was, you know, 10 years ago. That said, I was one of two women on my desk of Mm -hmm. 30 or 40 people. And the other woman was, you know, a director level, like a senior director level. So like, it wasn't like she was my peer, she was my manager. And she showed me nothing but support and love and, you know, really taught me everything I knew. Um, but I, I think that Wall Street could be doing a lot better of a job of retaining diversity and, in, you know, inclusive talent. Um, I think they're doing a much better job of hiring. So, like, you know, you have diversity programs for women, diversity programs for Black, Indigenous people of color, Latinx, Hispanic, LGBTQIA. But once those, you know, talented folks join the company, I feel like the resources for them and like the support is a lot less than there should be. So while the hiring is happening, the retention is tougher. And I think retention is also tougher because a lot of the more senior folks are still the white guys in suits and, you know, the culture is how it is. And that's going to be a slow change. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's such a great point. And, you know, I, I think it, like it, it's very, awesome that they have these programs in place. And, you know, my, my employer not only has those programs, but we have um, internal groups where we really support the culture and we really like let people be their authentic self. And to me, it's like, it's kind of disheartening to have this thought of like, ah, man, are they just doing this for PR? Like, is that all this is? And, and it's just like, you know, I don't like to be that cynical, right? Because that's just not a way to li- I like to live life. But at the same time, why are you hiring us if you're not going to support us? Or why are you hiring? Like, why why is that going on? You know what I mean? So I totally understand where you're coming from there. Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, there's lots of change to be done. You know, I think generally corporate world has made great strides. One, because they've had to. That's what the next generation is really demanding as a baseline of table stakes is diversity, inclusion, belonging. Mm. But I really do hope that they've seen like benefits to having a more diverse workforce. There's Mm. so much value in having people that don't look like carbon copies of each other and have all different ideas and can share them and have different thoughts of how to do stuff because that's how we get innovation. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. That's how it comes to comes to the forefront. As you as you were speaking about, you know, uh, your your career, I was just thinking, like, just looking forward. I think our Canada just approved another vaccine. We're like trying to roll some stuff out. You guys are, you know, do, doing some pretty good stuff too, from what I've seen. I don't know. Maybe you've got an opinion on that, but um, 
what are some things that, you know, some young adults can do to sort of inspire that confidence or make the best of what's going on or, or see the light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak, and really try to like, because it's just been such an energy suck for so many, especially kids that came out of, just came out of school. You know, what, what are some things that you would say is, is a good idea to, to sort of be thinking about and, and doing during this time? This is your time, your chance to like develop your side hustle. Uber was founded in the ashes of 2009. Like this is your chance. People were out of school, couldn't find those fancy jobs that they wanted because there weren't any. And those same people put their genius minds together and created these amazing companies that like we're all like using now. And like, I think this is a lot of young people who have great ideas. This is your shot to like, take the time to like develop them and perhaps make them into something that could be really earth shattering. Cause I think a big issue with taking time off and like working on entrepreneurship to your point is like the opportunity cost. You're giving up that salary, you're giving up that safety, but it's like, if you don't currently have a job, if you are living at home, if you are, you know, having all this free time, take advantage of it. Cause you yeah. probably won't ever have that again once you start yeah. working. Absolutely. Absolutely. This has been honestly such a awesome and, and just uh refreshing conversation. You know, what would you say is the one thing that's going to make the difference and, and set up a young adult uh, to being successful? If it, it can be a trade, it can be just like a sort of like uh, aspect, like, you know, I'd, I'd just love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think discipline. Discipline being paying off whatever loan you have, you know, in the installments as early as you can. If it's, you know, got a high interest rate on it, do that. If it's got a high interest rate, refinance it. If you have money to be saving every month, please do put it into a tax advantaged account, like a retirement account. And stay the course. Yes, it is okay to slip up and buy that new purse. It is okay to slip up and buy those new shoes occasionally, but you can't be treating yourself every single day. Like yeah. this is not Aziz Ansari. You cannot be treating yourself every other day. Like stay the course, make smart financial decisions, you know, 80, 90% of the time. And then the other 10, 20, like it is okay to enjoy the fruits of your labor and, you know, just make sure that you're living, not just surviving. What's your favorite, I guess, guilty pleasure? Like, what's the one thing you like treat yourself and you're like, yeah, like I, I'm never not giving that up. <laughs> um, this is like such a cliche, like girly thing. And I try to stay away from that stereotype, but I love shoes. I yeah. like that. Like, that's the thing. Like, I don't, <laughs> I don't really buy handbags. I don't really buy a lot of clothes, but like I see a good shoe and I'm just like, oh, I need yeah. to have it. But what I will say is, if you're going to buy designer goods, wait until you can go and, you know, once the vaccine rollout happens, buy them in a foreign country because yeah. wow. you can get you can get the VAT returned. So if I were to go to, you know, Europe and buy a pair of fancy designer shoes, I could actually get the tax back on them. And that is like a little fun fact. And it's completely legal. Wow, 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 wow. Well, thank you for, for people who love women's shoes and maybe now you can now you can you save some money there. So that's a, that's an amazing little tidbit. But honestly, I just wanted to thank you so, so much for coming on. And again, it was really awesome to talk to you. Where, where can they uh, find out uh, more about your content? Yeah, you can find me as Your Rich BFF on TikTok. And thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. No problem. We'll talk to you soon. Money, 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 money.
So there you have it, my friends. Thank you so, so much for tuning in. Again, just like grade A combo, man. I really, really enjoyed it. It's it's so great to, to talk about just like the small little things that you can do to really put yourself ahead. Just took a ton away from that combo. So appreciate you guys listening all the way through. Thank you so, so much. We got a pretty special Easter episode coming your way. So look out for that Sunday. Go listen to it on your Easter Sunday walk if, you, if that's a thing you do. Uh, I appreciate it, man. Thank you guys so, so much for tuning in. I appreciate y'all. I love y'all. But for now, I am out this mother. Peace.